of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about the Angry Young Men, British music from 77 to 82. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk about Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, Graham Parker, Ian Dury, Nick Lowe. Let's talk about the Angry Young Men. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are back in summer school. Um, I'm going to school uh, Jeremy and Christian on the Angry Young Men movement, uh, sort of loosely a uh, group of, of English singer-songwriters that came out of the pub rock and punk rock movement and um, had their heyday from, say, 77 to the early 80s, 82-ish. Um, and this is a group that includes Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, Joe Jackson, um, Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook of Squeeze, Ian Dury. Um, and, you know, on the periphery, uh, you could say maybe Paul Weller of The Jam. But uh, I grew up with this. This was, you know, really what sunk me into music uh, from the get-go. This came, you know, this started when I was in my... Um, you know, around eight, nine years old and uh, lasted into my um, entry into my teen years. Uh, let's call this the, uh, the soundtrack to my awkward phase. So um, had, neither one of these guys were around. You had a uh, headset <laughs> I, for your braces. <laughs> I did. I had head, head, head gear. gear yeah. Um, yeah. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a different. I actually, was I actually joyfully time. look back on that and uh, knowing that I got to see you with the uh, headgear. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I assume all the pictures have been burned because I've never. I, seen th- I think we could take some up. Chair was in his footy pajamas at the time, so uh, let's. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, basically, uh, the jumping-off point for me on this is is really. Uh, and I, actually, I'll, I'll uh, preface this by saying we are on our way to Port Elliot. Uh, Lit Fest next week, and where we're going to be doing our first ever live uh, broadcast podcast, and we'll be sitting down and talking to Richard Mason and Jeff Dyer, um, two of the leading lights of uh, of uh, modern literature, as far as I'm concerned. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, you guys are very excited about that, and uh, we're going to be talking about the the intersection between literature and music, and I think it's a you know this is a great way to sort of introduce it because I think these are some of the most literate songwriters um, that have ever played rock music, and uh, we'll start off you know really with uh, you know Elvis. I think we'll start with Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, uh, Nick Lowe who is going to be headlining the well, Port Elliot Lit Fest. So. Before that too, I think you know just to kind of frame this a little bit and, and how we do these brother schools is, is usually you know one of us is pretty passionate about a, a movement or a uh, a sort of you know I guess movement in music whether it's you know Britpop, disco, yeah, exactly, um, or or it's just a basic question you know sort of like Christian had at one point with New Wave and. In post-punk and and Wyndham and Christian did that great episode. So this one is similar to that in the sense that, you know, I I think I'll share my experience with this this kind of grouping of of musicians that that when talked about from the late 70s, early 80s, in my footy pajamas, it was music that I heard a lot. 
Um, you know, A, some of these guys broke through on MTV, namely Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello. So there was, uh, and MTV was constantly on in our house. Um, and then I think also it was just music that you listen to a lot when, and, and just by being around you or, or, or being in cars, it was stuff that I've always had this familiarity to. Um, I like some of it. I don't know it very much in depth. Um, but the other pieces, I've never really understood where it fits in. It's like the one genre of music that I have a really hard time, like, uh, Classifying. Yeah, classifying and also just, like, popping on when I'm with friends who also enjoy, like, other bands I like, you know? It, it doesn't quite fit into any... With the exception, I'll say, of Elvis Costello, who's sort of, um, you know, become a little bigger and, and kind of, I think, more universally liked. But And I know Christian has had that's, this... That's also partly <laughs> because of his persona, for his persona outside of right. music as well. I mean, the fact that he's hosted TV shows and sort of become, you know, much like Jules Holland, I think, like, he sort of... Uh, he sort of transcended like the the you know period and genre that, that he was sort of. A but I think he also well, gets he was, put in the his, his celebrity group. Yeah, he also gets put in the starter kit for people who like left the dial or or modern. You know, he was a guy that whether you thought he belonged there or whether you liked him or not, that was a guy that got grouped in with a lot of the you know punk bands or the the new wave bands or or even the alternative indie bands unlike some of these other guys that we're going to talk about today well i think you guys aren't the only ones that had trouble classifying it i mean this uh you know this group uh you know sort of loosely called the the angry young men uh the angry young men originally were a group of you know 50s era playwrights in england who you know wrote about ordinary people and you know the sort of uh the dire lives of of ordinary folks, uh, you know, uh, John Osborne's look back in anger, Kingsley Amos, people like that. That and so they were deemed the uh, angry young men. And then, as Brits are wont to do, they recycle the term. Uh, you know, this is the this is the country that gave us the second summer of love, right? Um, in the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, reruns. Um, anyway, the uh, but so you know, I think. Because punk had exploded and it was such a, you know, sort of massive burst and then flame out, um, you know, the, what came after it was um, frequently regarded as new wave. And new wave has become a more, as we discussed during the new wave podcast, new waves become a more defined thing. But at the time, anybody who wasn't either, you know, Led Zeppelin or, or Donna Summer was classified as new wave. I mean, Tom Petty... The Pretenders, um, you know, the Knack—they were all considered new wave. Well, and if you so remember the way we, the, the way we sort of, or I, the way I guess I settled at the end of the new wave episode that we did. You know, one of the sort of dis- really defining features that I thought separated new wave from post-punk, um, you know, was uh, you know was the the use of sort of synthesizers and slaving more electronic um, sounds, like mm-hmm. it was just you know sort of electronic atmospherics, whatever. Um, whereas, you know, I sort of said post-punk, I think, is sort of more... Um, Angular and like guitar-oriented. Like mortar instruments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's more rock guitar. But, I mean, I think the, the point, you know, the, the starting point was that um, in the late 70s, there really wasn't that much to distinguish post-punk from new wave. It was sort of all under one banner, and it was everything that wasn't what we would now... Nailed down. Sort of, yeah, what we would now generally refer to as, like, classic rock. So, you know, it's not, it's not Zeppelin, you're right, it's like, it's, it's sort of distinguished by being, like, kind of progressive, maybe sometimes kind of political, but, like, it was definitely a new, a newer sound, it was modern and young. And it had an attitude. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, but, I mean, but the, I guess the, the hard part for, for me to pin down, and this is what I'm really interested in digging into today, is sort of musically what the, what the characteristics were that tie it together, if there are really characteristics. 
and just takes music and put it together. Well, I mean, it is pretty straightforward rock and roll. This all came out of the pub rock scene in London, and um, you know, pub rock. So, was, like the the chumbo wumbo of its era. <laughs> uh, I would not go so far as to call it the chumbo wumbo of its era. More, maybe more of the Mekons. So sorry, sorry, Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello yeah. for yeah. Yeah, please. Um, you know, Nick Lowe was a you know was a, a fairly uh, you know center uh, you know sort of the centerpiece of, of the whole thing because he was the in-house producer at Stiff Records where a lot of these bands were signed and uh, you know he wound up producing all sorts of people um, but he did produce the first couple of Elvis Costello uh, records. First four, uh, funny right? thing. Yeah, the funny thing about the first Elvis Costello record, My Name is True, um, is that uh, his backing band was actually not the Attractions yet. He formed the Attractions after this demo session. Uh, but basically, he was hired to write a bunch of songs for Dave Edmonds, who was a Welsh classic rocker. I mean, you guys probably know, I Hear You Knocking. Um, it's an old Dave, do, uh, yeah. Dave Edmonds tune that was a pretty big hit in America. And um, so Elvis Costello was hired to write some of these songs. He winds up demoing them uh, with a, his backing band being Clover, which was a Bay Area, San Francisco band that was in England to record and wind up backing him on these demos. Clover included such luminaries as Huey Lewis and Jeff Picaro of uh, Toto. So, um, you know, he's got this very strange backing band. But the reason was is that Elvis Costello was never meant to be the performer of these songs. Dave Edmonds, who was already established, was meant to be. And Elvis Costello wound up sort of by force of will, um, you know, de- de- basically demanding that he become the performer of his own songs. And Nick Lowe uh, is the in-house producer. So um, that this is... Was, this was at Stiff Records. And so for those, for, for those of us who aren't super familiar with, with that label, that was like a late 70s uh, sort of pub rock, as you said, um, that was started by... Was, was, what was the guy's name, Paul Robinson? Yes, I believe so. And, uh, you know, I mean, they had a, they had a myriad of, uh, you know, they had a bunch of mismatched clients. I mean, Madness, Robinson, Mad, Madness was on Stiff. Um, you know, The Damned was on Stiff, also produced by Nick Lowe. Um, so, you know, and this is around the time, and Nick Lowe around this time starts putting out his own music. He, was a, he had been in a band called Brinsley Schwartz before, and he starts putting out solo records um, and, you know, strikes an unlikely hit on both sides of the Atlantic with uh, Cruel I was just going to ask. I, I mean, I love that it's song, a, and I know it, but I, I wasn't sure how big of a song it was uh, in it its day. It was a day. top ten hit okay, in America. That's what I figured, yeah. yeah. Well, and, so there, there's a little bit of, like, just to, just to provide the backstory. I was reading up on this and um, you know, be, before we did the podcast, uh, and, you know, I guess I think, like so many great moments in music, there was there, this was sort of fueled by rivalry a little bit because... Stiff was started by Dave Robinson and Jake Riviera, who were sort of a management combo. And, and to your point, um, that was that was when Nick Lowe was was producing. Um, and uh, you know, you, you had these sort of you had this sort of super team of um, of Costello and, and Nick Lowe and those folks. But um, you know, I think in '78, uh, apparently, you know, Robinson and Riviera had their differences. Kind of got like it, it sort of became too much, and then Riviera stormed off, left, formed. The short-lived Radar Records, and part of the settlement deal was that he took Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, and Yachts with him. Nice. So there was, you know, they, they were basically, and then, and then subsequent to that, um, Stiff picked up Madness, and you know, so you had this, you did sort of have a competitive atmosphere here, mm-hmm. um, which I think was sort of the sort of the backdrop for all this. Yeah, I think, and I think the bottom line seems to be that everybody who created a record label in, in England was crazy. 
um, you know, the Jeff Travises. And, I mean, they're, they're all bonkers, Alan McGee. Um, but, uh, you know, in, 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 in a good way. I mean, they certainly spotted a lot of talent. Uh, ironically, I mean, I think what's funny is that because this was, you know, thought of certainly as, as more sort of edgy music in, in America, um, it was sort of straight ahead pop, you know, charting pop music in England. But because it was British, it took on another uh, life over here, well, and it was sort of seen as college rock or, or what would become college rock. It's sort of uh, a slightly heightened, um, you know, sort of genre over here. But uh, weirdly, it, it, Jeremy and I have had this conversation many times about bands that were never on the radio that then become classic rock. Um, you know, bands like uh, the Talking Heads and, and uh, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Joe Jackson all fit that uh, relatively. Um, surely they weren't on uh, commercial radio all that much when they were actually making the music and they've now become classic rock it, in retrospect. Is it perhaps fair to say that, like, in an era when, you know, indie rock didn't exist and, it, you know, the, this was the closest thing that you had to? Well, this is indie um, rock, if you think about it. Stiff Records is an indie label. Um, right. These, you know, Rough Trades and indie label. Yeah, they're not. Um, creation indie label. So they're all, you know, they're all indie rock, so to speak, in the in the true definition of the term. Um, of and course. Yeah. But, and, but I mean, yeah, just the, before it was like a cultural concept. Yes. Um, you know, before well, I think there was a, you know, It sorry, fell ahead. into that, like when said, kind of that college rock or, or, you know, sort of, especially in the U.S., like alternative rock, college rock, what became that was was sort of what now is called indie rock. I mean, it's the same same kind of world. Yeah, it's it, and it's the same audience, you know what I mean? It's it's people who went to college. Well, I have a question and, uh, to win just on Elvis Costello. Go ahead, pretentious people. <laughs> yeah. Smatty pants. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, Elvis Costello, I think you could say is like, at least in America, the person who kind of planted, the I think, the, the most affecting kind of influence here, right? I mean, like he... He's the guy who, you know, first of all, in a typical English fashion, if you watch any English, uh, you know, crime dramas, certainly does not necessarily strike you as a rock star in looks or uh, in delivery or, you know, kind of like spastic qualities that he had on video and things like that. So, I mean... Um, he played them up. Yeah. And I mean, like what was kind of, you know, Christian and I were having this talk offline just about like... You know, he kind of got grouped in with the punks or the new waves uh, people and... and um, you know, I, I really love the first, I guess, five up to Imperial Bedroom, Elvis Costello albums. Um, I think they're fantastic, but it took me a while. Like, I always liked the idea of him before I I kind of really appreciated, like, the guy's, you know, wit and well, lyricism. I think, I think what it when is, you, as I said you before. Were about to, you, were about to, you were about to tee off with, with Elvis Costello's first album and Nick Lowe's first album, but do you, wanna, do you guys want to take a quick break and then we'll come back and sort of dive into those two characters in, in a little bit more detail? That sounds good. Yeah, let's do it. I'm 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about the Angry Young Men, uh, the singer-songwriters of the late 70s, early 80s in England, a uh, small group of, of very literate and, uh, to my ear, great uh, songwriters. So, um, you know, uh, Nick Lowe's first album, Jesus of Cool, maybe one of the greatest uh, album titles of all time, which um, sadly uh, had to be changed in America. Uh, I think it was called... Something like happening people for now, happening music for now people, or something like that. It was something silly, but um, I will not refer to it as anything other than Jesus of Cool. Um, Why would you? It's an amazing album name. Perfect album name. Yeah, Yeah, it's also the perfect album cover to go with it. I was was just uh, remarking on the fact that a friend of ours, Will Berman's done like a photo shoot version of this that he's like turned into a Facebook photo, which is awesome. Um, but you know, it's like, it is one of the best, uh, best sort of like portraits up there with like the blur, you know, the best of blur album cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, and I think that was a, a nod to uh, Jesus of Cool as well. Um, you know, my aim is true. Elvis Costello, you know, he, he did rely heavily on image um, early on. I mean, he was in fact a computer programmer, data entry guy. Uh, on, in his day job when he started recording songs. And um, so, it, it, you know, he played up the whole nerd, angry nerd uh, factor with the big glasses and, and kind of the... Buddy the Holly weird, hairdo and the... Yeah, and the sort of spitting delivery. Um, that said, uh, you know, My Aim is True in this year's model, his first two albums, one uh, recorded with... Uh, backing band with uh, Jeff Picaro and, and Huey Lewis. Uh, the next one, this year's model, was recorded with the Attractions, who became his uh, lifelong uh, backing band, Steve Naive, Pete Thomas, that crowd. Um, that said, uh, those two albums, I mean, they're, they're again, they come out and, and they're pretty goddamn amazing. I mean, that's a, for an early, for a debut album, I mean, he's got Allison, um, Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes, uh, also, you know, just these songs that are so distinctive right off the bat. His style is so different. Um, and, you know, it, the American critics really embraced him. I mean, I, I think you remember that, probably uh, the tail end of that, Jer. But, um, you know, he could I think they always wrong. have, yeah. I mean, he's a guy that um, I feel like, whether you like him or not, is put in that sort of almost like, you know, Bruce Springsteen or... or uh, you know, um, just those those critical circles where it's like um, Bob Dylan, even I'd say. You know, these these guys that can like get to this level of sort of. Um, I've always thought of him as somebody who's been named, who's been basically identified as like one of the truly gifted sort of songwriters. Mm-hmm. But I don't think by any means he has the rock star power in the same like the same way that that. Bruce Springsteen does. No, no, and I'm not saying like that connects. I'm okay. not saying rock star. I'm what I'm saying is is guys Sorry. that are sort of Teflon in the sense that like rock critics or NPR well, or like yeah, everybody. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. those yeah, are the that, people that, that really kind of yeah. find this guy. And, and I, I think there's other people that are even less popular than Elvis Costello that get that same treatment. Mm-hmm. No, I mean you know this is a guy that you know did a duets album with Burt Bacharach. Ultimately, uh, you know I think you know and rightly so he has. Um, you know, he's been placed in the sort of songwriting, uh, the sort of, you know, same echelon as sort of Cole Porter and Bob Dylan, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, 
his contemporaries uh, of the moment, you know, the damned and and uh, well, what, what um, was Pilf. really what was really interesting about him, I guess, is that and this is this is sort of what I wanted to to get your perspective on from a you know from sort of seeing it in real time or, or a little bit closer too, um, you know, is that he was in a way like he came out. As, as an angry guy, and I mean, you know, that fits the, the grouping, right, the angry mm-hmm. young men, um, and, and I guess his, his sort of passion, um, and like, I, I think it was, you know, it was sort of, it was razor-sharp wit and cynicism combined, but there was a little bit of aggression in there, um, oh, yes. and I think that that was what caused him to be sort of lumped together with, like, the punk, you know, the punk ethos, well, that's whereas, a- like, you know, Led Zeppelin was, like, singing about, like, Narnia and shit. <laughs> um, you know, these guys were actually focused on like social yeah. problems. And he was he was um, uh, so. he was singing about being personally injured by by women and um, and you know social class issues. Uh, and they were singing. And the, the other common denominator with all these guys is they were singing very much about England. They were you know they weren't afraid to be British and bring up British things. Um, you know, and peculiarities um, that you know. Which, by the way, American rock critics tend to like dribble over. <laughs> kind of yeah, like the kids, the, the you know, when the kids <laughs> yeah. got stuck in England. And this is really the natural successor to Ray up. Davies, you know, um, and it, but you know, a little and less uh, the, poppy. Uh, you know, the the yeah, the connection Angrier. between Ray Davies and Jarvis Cocker. Exactly, it's the bridge. Uh, between them, but I think also you know the funny thing that gets lost now because Elvis Costello is such a you know, sort of Mount Rushmore of of uh, pop songwriters that you know the thing that people tend to forget is that Joe Jackson was actually had a bigger hit maker uh, in the United States than than Elvis Costello was at the time. I mean, in retrospect, you know Elvis Costello's greatest hits is is ubiquitous, but in real time he was not charting in the United States, whereas Joe Jackson had a really weird um, outlier of a hit called Is She Really Going Out With Him? Um, and then so pardon my, pardon my ignorance here, but, like, I, I didn't grow up knowing who this guy was. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, you see he's a bigger hit maker. I don't know that it's lasted as well, it, aged as well, well perhaps. It hasn't. Um, well, it hasn't lasted as well. I, I personally think it... it has aged, you know. I th- I really love this stuff. I don't still. mean I don't mean the quality. I mean like yeah. it's it's um it's prominence in no, in, um, in th- the world of music. Right? I like think it, sort of, it seems to have moved to the margins a little bit. When you say I, he's a bigger hit maker than Elvis Costello, Elvis Costello I think is more of a household name. Oh, absolutely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, and and Joe Jackson did uh, you know ultimately towards the late 80s get tired of, of rock music and became more of like a jazz. I was going to say, he kind of um, didn't help by his late later years becoming almost like a musical guy or like a lounge yeah, singer. Like a classical yeah. Oh, boy. Um, no, he's, he's a phenomenal musician. He's a great piano player. And, you know, um, but when Jer was a little kid, I think, you know, 83 was Joe Jackson's real big year when he put out Night and Day. And Stepping Out was, an, you know, was I, at least a top Stepping Out was a huge hit. I mean, Stepping Out, or I shouldn't say huge, I have no idea. But I, it's a song that I remember both the video for pretty vividly, and I remember the song. And it reminds me of, like, early 80s being it, young, you know? Exactly. So <laughs> Breaking Us in Two yeah. was another big hit. And uh, um, I think, I mean, I actually really like early Joe Jackson, A, because, you know, I, I had wins, like, left behind tapes of I'm the Man and Look Sharp, which are actually... Pretty jump in albums, um, and I think you'd really like those too, Christian. Um, Night and Day definitely was more of that like, and, and I like those it songs. As yeah, well. but it was like yeah. very much more like e- very eighties to me as, as as a dated. I think I don't think it would hold up as well 
um, as the first two. But yeah, I mean, he was big. It's funny to think back. Cause it, and I guess like my overall arching thing though is like, I don't know. You, I just always like to kind of compartmentalize groups into into movements. Was this known as like the angry young men movement at the time, or was it just people from England I, who were literate, who were you know kind of songwriter guys who were, were catching the attention of the media or the music press? Is, is it, at that point, it was referred to as the angry. It, you know, they were referred to as the angry young men. I think that uh, which is ironic has only faded. because they're making yeah, but that's it's like that's crazy that that like all this Costello and his thick rimmed glasses. Like gets the moniker "Angry Young Men" the same year that like Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious tore America. Yeah, like what? Yeah, well, it, it, the thing is, is he was you know their their lyrics were very sharp and pointed. I mean, I think um, you know you listen to Joe Jackson uh, lyrics and um, they're bitter. You know, he's a bitter guy. Elvis Costello, bitter. Um, you know, I heard I heard you let that little friend of the, mine take off your party dress. You know, it's not this, a kindly. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not, and then so they're joined by Graham Parker, who is, you know, uh, ultimate pub rocker, uh, not as big at all over here, but uh, had a couple of top ten hits in England, but squeezing out sparks in the early 80s was a critic, you know, wet dream. It was uh, Graham, Graham Parker and the Rumor, um, and uh, that, I believe, you know, I had a subscription uh, via Dad to uh, Rolling Stone magazine uh, throughout the late 70s, early 80s. And I remember Graham Parker and the rumor squeezing out sparks and Richard and Linda Thompson's um, Shoot Out the Lights being the only two records I ever remember getting five stars. Right. And And, uh, so it was... And having heard neither of them. (laughs) Yeah, well, and, and both of the, you know, all of these guys basically were the top of every year's Paz and Jop poll. You know what I mean? That, that, that's the kind of artist that they were. Uh, Graham Parker's Local Girls. The other thing that is funny... So and, it's like the stuff that gets, uh, you know, 9.8 on Pitchfork and nobody listens to it or knows correct. what the hell it is. Yeah. Okay. Stockhausen. Um, it's greatest hits. <laughs> um, but uh, the other funny thing is, you know, and I've said this before in, in different uh, about different uh, artists and uh, that, you know, we had MTV from day one, 1981. And the fact is that Brits put a much higher premium on the visual um, and video uh, that would accompany the release of an album. And so when MTV started up, you got this huge onslaught of British bands on American television because Americans didn't make videos yet, per se. And so you got a, a very strange... Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You get a very strange, you know, sort of uh, popularity. Well, there's a, there was a vacuum and somebody needed to fill it and those guys were willing to do it and therefore, you know, they amplified their, their marketing. Right. So these guys aren't necessarily selling a ton of, of hits and singles, but, um, you know, Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Joe Jackson, uh, The Jam... Squeeze are all getting played on MTV in heavy rotation because there's nothing else to play. And so I think that's how America really kind of caught on to, or, you know, a lot of younger people really caught on to this stuff. I mean, you know, obviously... That is interesting as I'm thinking about it, like, the, you know, the the and, like, Spandau all have, like, huge uh, music video libraries, which is kind of funny when you think about, like, yeah, that's not necessarily true for... Their, there, uh, American there was a lot of resistance to MTV. You know, um, it, it's hard to imagine now, but um, you know, there was a lot of resistance. Like, there's a lot of, especially among like sort of more macho rock and roll um, guys, rock acts. Yeah, I mean, like 
you know, I mean, Petty was like famously opposed to it. Well, right? and you Absolutely. think even replacements smaller and... bands, yeah, I was just going to say the replacements wouldn't make a video, which would have tremendously helped their career, possibly, you know, it was a... Uh... Well, and then they did, and it was kind of a fuck yeah, you, totally. which is, yeah. yeah. Well, that's exactly what it was. And, I mean, the Pixies did that video where it's just them, you know, running, running slow motion yeah. across a rock. <laughs> or even their <laughs> one almost breakthrough for, uh, you know, Here Comes Your Man is just every time the vocals start, yeah. he just opens his mouth and doesn't <laughs> doesn't lip sync, you know? Yeah, he's not yeah, lip syncing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah we, we just saw that, that uh, I mean, and, and if you haven't seen it, check it out. Jared uh, uh, spotlighted it a couple weeks ago, but when Pill played American Bandstand, yeah, awesome. and they didn't even pretend to play. They just, Johnny Lydon walking around, like, shoving the know, mic in dancers' faces. Dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, there was... There was definitely a, a, a lack of ease with the with the medium, and so you know when people like Elvis Costello, who is no you know I mean, and no offense to Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, but they're not exactly lookers. Um, you know those guys were prominently featured in their videos. We knew what they looked like. You know Joe Jackson <laughs> looks like a six foot six bald guy. Uh, with, yeah, not with, a looker. You know, <laughs> no, with a putty face, but he's a you know phenomenal player. <laughs> Well, I mean, I remember like what's so funny about peace, okay, love, and Joe understanding, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Joe Jackson had literally like high budget videos. I mean, they were like you know fully yeah. uh, you know filmic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, I mean, and this was back you know a lot of what the about, directors that you've heard of started off so doing can, those. So one one thing I wanted to get at you guys and just to tack back a little bit to like the the sort of you know how these guys got grouped together, which was sort of the the originally were like. Jeremy's question started, and I think, you know, the fact that they were um, brought together by, like, the, the presence or the availability of their own music videos is, like, a really interesting aspect of it, but um, I sort of, like, when we say they're angry, or, you know, the bitterness, I guess, sort of comes across in some of the songs about, um, about you know, romance Women. and relationships. Yeah, exactly. Or men. Um, but, I mean, you know, but, but I think... Uh, what are they angry about socially? Like, what is it generationally? It's, I mean, like, the punk kids were just kind of, like, nihilists, right? Like, yeah. at the bottom, at the end of the day, they were, they weren't, you know, they were, they were just sort of, like, bored. Thatcher. Bored these guys are, these guys were artful complainers rather than, uh, than brats, if that makes sense. They're, you know, the, Punk will win, I think, too. Punk was, was snotty, bratty, and blow it all up, fuck it. Yeah, And anarchy. these guys were more, uh, Nihilist versus, like, so. I like, would say like, one other piece, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, at least Elvis Costello, like, you know, we were talking about the album Armed Forces with Oliver's Army. There's a lot of, there's some politics as well. I mean, this is in, granted, granted, I'm pretty young, but, um, you know, for this time period, but, you know, it was the height of the Cold War, Reagan in the U.S., Thatcher, right, in in England. So the conservatism had really come back. And, uh, you know, I know you had mentioned the jam, whether you consider them part of the, okay, so... um, I got you. I mean, they certainly. So then it was the decline of, of you know, no, the 70s their, and still the Cold War. Correct. This is coal strikes. This gotcha. is, you know, um, you know, this is still a group that was raised by World War II. Industrialization. Yeah. yeah. World War II yeah. veterans who, who came drove home from the, the war and, the, uh, and <laughs> didn't the talk to them. twist. <laughs> when you yeah. had, like, major. So, wait, the, the big union stuff. That, that wasn't in the late 70s? Yeah, it was like, late 70s. Like the big yeah. union fights were, yeah, so you had massive strikes all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But when did like a song yeah, like Town Called Malice come out by the jam? That was 1981. Okay, so that was the um, same period then. Yeah, and the jam was, you know, I mean, I, I throw Paul Weller into this category, although he was not grouped into this category particularly. Um, I think, you know, he's another spitting man. I mean, he's a very, very... Um, 
keen social critic. Uh, I mean, you listen to a song like Eaton Rifles or, um, and, or you know, uh, Town Called Malice, or, uh, and even in the relationship department, The Bitterest Pill is one of the nastier uh, written songs. I mean, it has one of my favorite lines of all time. It's, you know, in your white lace and your wedding bells, you look the picture of contented new wealth. It's um, a pretty harsh sentiment. Uh, to it's a, also it's also social and class commentary no, in totally. addition to being a really nasty takedown. But I, w- um, I would say the jam was sort of um, you know one foot in the punk scene, one foot in the angry young men songwriter thing. But the funny thing about the jam too is that as a you know as a sort of a um, contrarian fuck you thing, um, they claimed to be Tory at the time. Um, and they wore suits on stage and had short haircuts. And that really, I mean, people took it very seriously. And that there was a massive backlash. Um, you know, they were singing these songs, you know, that are obviously, um, you know, you know, strong counterstatements on social class and social uh, issues. But, you know, just the fact that they were once quoted as saying, we'd vote Tory, uh, really set them back a couple of, couple of years, probably. Interesting. So they were... Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a different time. Um, but should we take one of the a, other guys? That, uh, sorry, should we? Wait, okay. what was the band? So they were like, what was the band that quit Trump's inauguration? The, it, it wasn't Third Eye Blind. They were yeah, but it was like or, no, it was the Third Eye Blind the, was the band that, that it was the um, Republican the convention. Yeah, they they just went to the convention, played it, and mocked the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was so pretty, you basically know, they, that was the jam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was. Uh, um, yeah, they were pretty funny in their own way. Um, let's yeah, let's take a quick break and come back. Sounds good. Cool. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about the angry young men of, of the late 70s, early 80s in England. Uh, Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, um, 
at Graham Parker. Nick Lowe, Graham Nick Parker. Lowe. And uh, one of the guys that uh, I had almost forgotten, and, and I'm glad I didn't because he's one of the funniest songwriters ever and one of the great uh, personalities of rock in rock history. And that's Ian Dury, uh, Ian Dury and the Blockheads. Who had Great name uh, for another a backing band too, by the way. Yeah, I mean, and you know, Ian Dury is a guy that was crippled by polio at a young age, um, and uh, you know, sort of always had that, you know, had a had a wicked wit and a and you know, wore um, well. Uh, he, he he was an actor as well. He's been in a you know probably a dozen movies. He died in two thousand, um, but he was uh, extremely funny and his delivery. Um, you know, he sort of out-Britished everybody in terms of his delivery. It's this very sort of purposefully Cockney. He's not Cockney, um, but this purposefully sort of overly British um, uh, vocal delivery. Uh, he had a couple big, couple sort of minor hits in the States, actually, with Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick. Um, another That's an awesome time. name. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, this is a guy, you know, who himself... Uh, you know, spent a lifetime on, on crutches and was disabled, who for National uh, Disabled Recognition Day wrote a song called Spasticus um, Autisticus. Uh, as a fuck you to anybody who he thought was patronizing him for being handicapped. So um, very funny. Uh, again, like I said, he was actually, uh, I was reading his bio today, and, and um, I'd forgotten that he actually had a small role in, in uh, Judge Dredd. Um, among other things. So he, he actually was a pretty successful actor um, on top of it all. But uh, so that was sort of, um, you know, I think that sort of rounds out the list with uh, Squeeze um, being on the, ver- on the fringe of that. I think, um, you know, Glenn Tilbrook and, and Chris Difford, Chris Difford particularly, who was the lyricist for Squeeze, um, was equally deft in his wordplay, a little less angry and a little bit uh, more... Um, sunny in his disposition, you know, in his disposition and writing. A little bit more pop and romantic. I mean, there was, there was sort of, I, I, not to say that the, I mean, the writing was, was fantastic. As good, for sure, yeah. But it was like, um, less uh, I mean, as you say, a little sunnier, yeah, a little less bitter. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like, like they were more focused on making, you know, slightly more mainstream hits. pop songs, which they did. Well, it goes part yeah. and parcel, uh, as does Nick Lowe, it goes part and parcel with being handsome. So, um, you know. Yeah, you tend to be a little less angry. Here. There's less to be pissed about. Yeah, yeah totally. Trust me. Um, but, uh, and, you know, uh, as we, uh, you know, and Paul Weller as well. Uh, uh, but, you know, those are two that I've sort of retrofitted into this group I, because I think they, they cover the literate uh, side of things. I mean, Chris Difford, uh, you know, a song like Cool for Cats or Tempted or, or Pulling Muscles from a Shell. I mean, those are, you know, such crafty uh, well-written songs and, and actually hooky as hell too to answer your question about uh, where the where the pop hooks live um, they live on Joe Jackson and Squeeze albums uh, very decidedly and then Ian Dury is just almost um, comedic in his delivery um, but you know uh, has a, like I said a very deadpan kind of uh, um, delivery and it, it's it's really funny I'm gonna I'm excited to put together this playlist for you guys I'm excited and, to listen to, to it yeah. Yeah, me too. So, um, but go ahead. When did you have? What else were you gonna say? I was. Just, I was. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm talking over here. No, no, no. You guys just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what happened at the end of this stuff? I mean, that's what I really want to yeah, understand. Like, why, where did where did it go? Did it disappear? 
did it burn out? I mean, it, like, the thing is, Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, these guys, like, unlike punk, which, I mean, you know, I think is the ultimate, like, supernova is the best term to describe that. I mean, we've, we've used it regularly on this pod, but it does perfectly capture what happened. It was such a fucking flash in the pan. Um, and there was so much energy, and then everybody OD'd. Um, but, like, th- these guys were, like, songwriters for a long time. And, yeah, well, and they kept making good albums. They're still, yeah, still well, making the albums. You know? Nick Lowe's still writing great songs. These guys are all still, you know, uh, I mean, Ian Dury obviously deceased, but, um, you know, uh, Paul Weller, still capable, still a very capable songwriter. Um, you know, Graham Parker uh, made a weird uh, comeback in uh, the movie This Is 40, uh, a couple years ago, he was uh, part, part of the storyline was that Paul Rudd's character was a massive Graham Parker fan and was trying to resurrect his career. Um, oh, good. His, his musical taste has uh, shifted from Rush to Graham Parker, which I think we can all appreciate. <laughs> between yeah. forgetting, what was it? Yeah. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, yeah. yeah exactly. Or uh, best, um, uh, best Man or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Funny movie, um, actually. It was good. I, what was it called? It was called... Uh, Oh, well. Um, anyway, but the, uh, you know, they're all, they're, I think as they got older and obviously. I love you, man. I love you, man. Love you, man. Thank, Thank you. you. And the, uh, <laughs> the um, you know, the Steve angry young, the angry young man thing, obviously you don't stay angry and young forever. And uh, oddly, a lot of these guys, I mean, Joe Jackson basically went into another form of songcraft altogether. I mean, he's. Played a lot of jazz and classical. Christmas and, albums? Yeah, no, hardly. But, um, you know, Elvis Costello has done duets with Burt Bacharach. And, and, he's done country you know, albums. He's done... He's, he's con- you know, almost more of a crooner now. Um, you know, a writer of standards. And, um, you know, Paul Weller has stayed fairly... Uh, uh, he You know, he went through a, a pretty long period at, right after the jam of, you know, with Style Council uh, of, you know, doing a sort of blue-eyed soul thing. Um so, you know, they all sort of went in different musical directions, but they all stayed in music. Um, and then, you know, they sort of gave rise to a group on the American side that adopted this kind of um, aesthetic, but didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily as popular with it. I mean, people like Marshall Crenshaw, um, you know, rose up in the early 80s. And, you know, I attribute I people like Freddy Johnson and, um, you know, really like the singer-songwriter. I guess it's, it's probably... it's. It's uh, analog over here would probably be more Americana. Yeah, I was gonna um, say it's kind of a blend of of uh, singer songwriterism and power pop without the you know kind of like we talked about before. It's it's not quite it's not folk music and it's not strict sort of singer songwriter Americana, no. but you you don't have kind of I the power of power pop. You know, I mean Steve Earle is a distant cousin. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it, that kind of. Sharp. I sort of felt like Jonathan Richmond and RBQ, like those guys are sort of the closest thing that we've got here. But they're I mean, more really. You know, storytellers. A but they're bit, sort but of like sly and playful. Bar band. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what this is. This is pub rock. This is you know, this is gave rise it to is the bar sly band. And playful. Yeah, and then on the American side, it was less uh, cynical and and probably a little bit more. Um, There's more to be happy about. It. <laughs> that is true. That's why, that's why probably everybody on this list lives here. <laughs> Scrambled open up a swamp of your life. The bitter is 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Um, as is our duty in these particular um, episodes, the uh, Brother School, I'm going to put together a starter kit for you guys to uh, go home and do your homework. And that would include, in this case, I'd say Elvis Costello's My Aim is True and Imperial Bedroom, my two faves. Um, Joe Jackson's Look Sharp and I'm the Man. Graham Parker's Squeezing Out Sparks. Nick Lowe's The Jesus of Cool. Um, and, you know, a couple Ian Dury singles sprinkled in. Um, Hit me with your rhythm stick and sex and drugs and rock and roll. Some great stuff. And then uh, sound effects by the jam, because that should always be on uh, yeah. every... i got to say, I'm, I'm very well schooled ever. in that album. It's a great record. So, uh, so and you'll also, you'll also sort of curate this a little bit, since um, Starter Kids uh, became a starter backpack full of CDs just now. Um, yeah, exactly. But, it's, a, uh, it's a fat wallet of, of CDs <laughs> yeah, on, your, exactly. on your cars. Um, but you'll also curate a playlist for us, which will be Absolutely. on Spotify under the Brother Pod. So definitely uh, definitely check that out. I think this will be cool. I'm looking forward to, to hearing that. So. And, um, Chris, and then should we turn to what are we listening to? Well, yeah. Well, Christian, you want to do a, a quick uh, Port Elliott um, update? Sure. Um, so we will uh, we will be performing live um, on July 29th at 12:15 in the Walled Garden, which sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. But I assure it you, looks like one. Um, yeah, exactly. But I assure you, it is a real place um, on the grounds of uh, of Port Elliot. And um, we're going to be talking with uh, Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason, two um, excellent authors, two of two our men, favorite authors, two men who um, are far too handsome to be angry. Um, exactly, and they're. Uh, but we're going to be talking about music and literature, and, and you know how they um, how they've incorporated music into into their works. Um, but also, uh, also we're we're excited just to kind of pick their brains and, and you know hear about what they like to listen to and uh, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, one of the things I've actually been listening to, and this is a good segue, um, is the Port Elliot. Uh, Playlist. The Spotify playlist, the Port Elliott 2017 Spotify playlist, which I'll, I'll tweet out. And it's got a bunch of great artists, including, you know, who are going to be performing at the festival, including Nick Lowe, um, Sade Ntien, uh, Duke Garwood, The Orioles, Childhood, This Is the Kit, The Golden Drags, and, and a bunch of others. Um, Tinned Fruit. So, The Velvet Hands, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're going to, in addition to, to our thing with Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason, we're, we're going to be interviewing a bunch of the, the musicians there, um, talking to them, and uh, you know what, we're, we're going to interview whoever the hell else we want, um, who, who wants to who wants to be interviewed, because frankly, this is a, this is sort of a, a you know, a meeting ground for, for a lot of um, pretty fascinating people, uh, and, and a lot of intellectual firepower, so we're definitely uh, excited to, to speak to those folks next week. Yes, we're Brother. quite... Quite unarmed in that case. Um, Our first European and, uh, tour. It's exciting. Yeah. Jerry, what are you listening to? 
Um, so besides being excited about Port Elliott, I, uh, I've been actually watching a couple of things. Um, I've been just trying out some Netflix shows, just looking for TV, really. Game of Thrones is back. I talked about that in a, another pod. But um, I tried the new um, show Gypsy with um, Naomi, Naomi Watts, and I tried a new show with um, one of the Key and Peel guys called Friends from College. And, you know, I don't like to be super negative on what you're listening to, but they both suck. Um, so I need to find some new TV quick. I'm open to any suggestions. Um, I also have been listening to a bunch. I went back and, and kind of, uh, I read a pitchfork, I think did a, a, a recent, it was either stereo gum or pitchfork, um, did a thing on the making of 24 hour revenge therapy by jawbreaker, um, which was a, a pretty big album for people of my age. And, uh, I think a lot of people who like punk rock in general, and, and I've just gone back and, and just really been digging on listening to that album again. It was, uh, I will say, like, I had a lot of friends who were really into it in real time, and I was a little less enthused at the time, but I've gone back and, and um, over the years, just really come to respect that band and that album. So um, I'd highly recommend. I think they're doing some, some to give it a spin. Some so this tours was, this as well. This was pretty good. This was the, uh, this is the, like, the oral history of yep, the album. Yeah, exactly. That was back in April. Yeah, Lior Galil for Pitchfork wrote that. That was, uh, I really liked that. Very cool. So, Christian, what are you listening to? Um, well, I was actually going to bring up, um, in, I mean, in addition to the Port Elliott stuff, I was going to bring up uh, the album Total. So last week, um, in, in our episode, our Battle of the Bands episode between Joy Division and New Order, um, you know, we were we were sort of talking about how, uh, how one, you know, one of those bands sort of bled into the other, and it was interesting sort of comparing those two albums, because there is that sort of period of time late Joy Division where they'd started performing a series of singles that they hadn't yet um, actually, you know, that hadn't made it onto albums, and presumably, I think the thought is that it would have it would have gone on to um, you know Joy Division's third album, but of course uh, that that never happened um, because they lost Dean Curtis. So, uh, you know, while I think we were all pretty skeptical of like best of albums and compilations and stuff like that, with the exception of Best of Blur, which is awesome, um, I uh, I will say that Total, which was I, I believe curated by you know Stephen Morris, Peter Hook, and um, uh, Bernard Sumner, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great example, you know, because it pulls out, it, it, it brings you the best songs from the first two Joy Division albums. It adds in the singles that, that didn't make it onto an album. Um, and it really does show you like how smooth that evolution actually is. Um, and you know, it, it, again, I, I go back to the ultimate question, um, which is, oh my God, how good would they have been if, if Ian Curtis were still alive? And, and, um, you know, and, and those guys were really developing musically the way they did. That would have been something else. Yeah, that would have been... Uh, the, to listen to the uh, Ian Curtis dance records would be pretty wild. <laughs> also, you know, one of my, my other favorite laments of all time is, you know, if Elvis had lived another year, he definitely would have put out a disco record and I would have bought that. That would have been pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I, but that's the thing. Like, you say the Ian Curtis dance records, like, I, I think... You know that is what level terrace apart is. Yeah, I like mean, we it, have we have so few examples of that, but like what they are, you know, they're awesome. Yeah, they're 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 beautiful. Um, I uh, I am listening to also listening to the Port Elliot uh, um, Spotify playlist, which is fantastic. But I went and saw Dunkirk in IMAX last night, and um, it is remarkable. It's unbelievable. So. Um, I'm not going to say too much about it other than it's a, a vis- visual and visceral uh, experience. Um, 
not unlike the experience I had watching um, Gravity uh, in IMAX 3D. It's very immersive. Um, there's very little uh, really character development or dialogue. It's because um, it you know takes place over the course of you know a couple of days. But it is wild, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. So, and I, and if you do have an opportunity to see it in IMAX, do it. I'm not usually somebody who pushes, um, you know, that as a uh, as a necessary feature of most of the movies I like. But in this case, it's really important. Is is Chris Nolan just positioning himself as like king of IMAX? He must be. I mean, yeah. Between Gravity and Interstellar, like I mean, he really does. It's visual storytelling in a way that I don't know that anybody else is, is quite it, as accomplished. So. It's really crazy. This is. A, I mean, actually, I don't. He didn't do Gravity, but um, uh, oh. Two, I think did. That's yeah, that's right. It was Inner Two. Sorry about that. Or one of those. One of the. Um, one of the that group. Um, but uh, but um, Christopher Nolan. I mean, this is you know, it's just a outstanding. Uh, movie and the funny thing about not having much dialogue is that Mark Rylance is really the central uh, focus, uh, if there is a central focus of a, of a particular person, and that guy's face does more uh, explaining than anybody I've ever seen on film. So and his eyebrows do too. Yeah, and he looks exactly like our grandfather. So oh, yeah, um, that's true. Uh, and everybody else in Wales, um, but uh, so um, you want to put a song on the uh, on the on the. 400 million uh, 10 best songs of all time playlist I've, I've given up trying to trying to insist that this is the the top the 10 that shit <laughs> alright Jeremy um yeah so when I don't want to steal anything from your uh your angry young men no. but you made me first made me go first so I was uh, on my my short list is Beyond Belief by Elvis Costello and the Attractions and uh that's going on great Christian uh, I'm I'm also in the um, vein of angry young British men from the late 1970s going to put a song from Big Boy's new album on our playlist, uh, <laughs> All Night, off the album Boomiverse. Nice. I like that one. And That's I am an going awesome to put song. On, that is like uh, the hit of the summer, I think. So I'm going to counter, I'm going to go uh, in the same vein as the uh, pod and, and go with The Bitterest Pill by The Jam. Nice. So, anyway... Thanks, you guys. Uh, we will talk soon. This was awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Now go do your homework. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.